Welcome to Your Best Riding Life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Riders Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the writing and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. I am so very glad you're listening in today. We're gonna be looking at the difference between composing and communicating. And I will tell you, if you're writing, you gotta do it correctly. My industry expert today is award-winning author of more than 30 books and a much sought after speaker, Cynthia Rukti. Cynthia is the professional relations liaison for American Christian fiction writers and serves as a literary agent with books and such literary management. She and her husband live in the heart of Wisconsin, near their three children, and at this count, six grandchildren. Cynthia, welcome back to Your Best Writing Life. It is great to have you here. Uh, Linda, it's such a delight to talk to you and to have an opportunity to speak into the lives of writers. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's head right into our content for today. We're going to be looking at the difference between composing and communicating for writers. You say that writing and marriage have a lot in common. Go ahead and share that with us. Well, I've been married enough years to know that there are times when I think I'm saying what my husband should be able to catch. And turns out he's not. And in fact, that started way back early in our relationship. So after all these years together, one would think that it wouldn't have taken me long to notice that we communicated in different ways. Mm -hmm. But also, as you well know, Linda, too, there, there are times when we think, whether it's marriage or any other relationship, we think we're making perfect sense in what we're saying. We think we've asked a simple question, perhaps. And what comes back to us shows that whatever it was we were saying is not getting through. And mm. it isn't. And this is one of the key things we have to realize, I think, as writers is it isn't necessarily because the person on the other end isn't intending to listen or doesn't want to hear what we have to say. Sometimes it's because the way we're communicating is not the way they receive so for us in this world of speaking and writing, it really doesn't matter how profound the thing is that we said and that we carefully crafted if it's not getting through. So seeing those comparisons, I, I think it's pretty easy for a lot of people to see how they may have several people in their circle of friends that every time they say something, the person on the other end gets it. Yep, got it, got it, got it. Then there's that one friend or two friends or the spouse or a child or something that seems like they're never quite getting it. And we think everybody else does. How come you're not? Mm. Part of that may be the way we're communicating. And part of it may be the complexity of how God has made that other person on the receiving end. Um, I know that when with, I'll use my husband again as an example, when we got into the place where I cared more about understanding how he was receiving than what I was saying, wow, did that change things for us. I learned how to couch my words in different kinds of word pictures. I learned how to make the message that I was communicating less complex because he was already thinking about point one and I was on point four. He was locked into 
I don't even know how to figure out my response to point one, but uh, Linda, I think you're a very thoughtful person, but for me, I think in three point plans. So what comes out of my mouth comes out fast and it comes out logically and everything that doesn't necessarily work when I'm communicating with my husband. I need to give him time to digest what I'm saying. Okay. So how does that work then for writers knowing that Mm. there's a wide range of readers or listeners to what we have to say? That's part of that premise. Feel free to jump in anytime, Linda, and add <laughs> your beautiful, wise insights into this too, because I know you have a lot to say on the subject as well. Well, you know, Cynthia, my background in personalities and mm-hmm. my one of my really good friends, Linda Gilden, and I, we've, we have co-authored the Linked Personality Series, and you're speaking my language right now. Mm-hmm. And it's knowing that when someone, when we're speaking, when we're communicating with another person, and if we're face to face with them, we can see if a countenance drops. Mm-hmm. We can see if their eyes divert. We can see posture changes. And if we are in tune to that, then we can take a moment, step back, take a breath, come back in and go, I probably didn't say that, or you probably heard that a little different than how I meant for you to perceive it. Mm -hmm. And so I can see how this works as writers, because when we write, our tendency is to write in our own strength, write to our own selves, our what drives us. Mm -hmm. But as you said, readers are variables Mm -hmm. and they all have different personalities. Mm -hmm. So I need to write in such a way, if I'm getting this from you, I need to write in such a way that they perceive what I'm saying, not going off on another tangent mm-hmm. in a direction that I wasn't even going there myself. Is Does that sound right? That's that's absolutely right. I think the main, one of the main focus points is that we need to know our audience. That's very difficult to do when we're writing to that vast crowd out there whom we may never meet. It's a little easier to do if we have a three-day-long women's retreat where we do get to know the audience as we're going through and we're speaking to them there. But when we're writing for paper, that changes a lot of things in in our perceptions and in our techniques of how we write. Humor, for one thing, does not translate very well in print. And those of us who love to write a little humor, or especially sarcasm, sarcasm doesn't work Mm. at all in print writing it many times because there are people who have either a different sense of humor, no sense of humor, will have no idea that you meant that to be sarcastic. They'll think you meant that straightforward. So if you say, well, God can't possibly know what I'm going through today, they'll think you really meant that when you put Mm. it on paper. So part of knowing your audience then is figuring out what we were talking about before. How do they best learn? For most people, it's through story, whether that's a visual story or it's a story that they're doing with their hands kinetically, or whether it's auditory or what they visualize because of what the words created. In my way of thinking, I like to liken it to the idea that 
a writer has to become a temporary psychologist and sociologist and anthropologist <laughs> and cultural studies expert <laughs> because we need to know right now, it may not be for me, but for my audience, what would be a trigger word that mm. would send them off so now they're no longer listening? What is a culturally outdated example? I get it. Mm. But my, many of my readers are going to be much younger than I am. Will they even understand if I refer to Andy of Mayberry? Some of them will, because they will have seen all the reruns, but there are a lot of people, and we know this today as we even work within our churches, that we might use a reference and it will be a foreign concept to people either much younger, much older, from a different country, from a different culture. Absolutely. Uh, what kind of metaphors are we using and how do we need to create, how can we create metaphors or examples that, that encompass their, their, the breadth of what our typical reader is going to be experiencing? I have the opportunity to perform in schools and one of the programs that I'm a part of deals with idioms mm. and it's amazing how many outdated idiom phrases mm. are still being played out there that the young people today, they have no idea what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned those of different cultures. If we use idiom phrases in our writing, they may not track with you. They're not going to go where you're going. You know, in Texas, you can say, hold your horses. <laughs> and, but if it's someone who's like, I don't, you know, I don't have a horse. I didn't bring a horse. Don't have a horse. Don't know how to hold a horse. horse. <laughs> didn't even, didn't even see a horse. Yeah. So that, that could be confusing. And also it's really a good thing maybe to have your beta readers looking for that. Right. I think definitely that is the truth. Uh, beta readers, critique partners, oftentimes mm -hmm. it's the agent. It might be the literary agent who is catching those things. I judge for a lot of contests and I sometimes will put in the margin not to be, not to be in any way sassy, but just that I will put in the margin, I know what your age is because of mm. the examples that you're, you, you used. Or nice. I know you're from Canada or the British Isles because of the phrasing that you used. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't be from the British Isles. It just means that that is coming out in the writing. And if that's intentional, great. But if it's unintentional, then we need to do a little adjustment and realize that. I'm thinking of things even too, and we'll move on to another topic quickly, but I'm thinking too of the idea that if we use the word abundance in our writing, what does abundance mean to a 20-year-old? Right. What does abundance mean to the very wealthy in our audience versus what does abundance mean to someone who's poverty stricken? It may even be a word that is not a word they would gravitate toward as something to aspire to because they have no hope that they will ever have an abundance of anything. So when we're trying to explain this beautiful spiritual principle of abundance to our readers, keeping in mind that some of those readers will never have had a solid confidence in where their next meal was going to come from. And some of them, they will throw away food that would have fed a whole family. 
So spiritually speaking, when we're talking about abundance, we may have to put some more word pictures in there of what that's like, no matter where you are on that socioeconomic plane or where you live or your age group. And then last point I would want to make in this writing and marriage have a lot in common before I say one important thing about composing versus communicating. The last thing is sometimes we have to get their attention first. I know with uh, uh, with my beloved, my husband, that if he is thinking through another problem, it's difficult to switch to a new problem instantly. He needs a little breathing space in between. That's no aspersion against him. That's his nature. For me, I have had to live a life my entire life where there were either toddlers underfoot and if something was burning on the stove but a child was injured, I had to make a decision really quickly, which I was going to attend to first. And so I have been toggling back and forth between crises Mm. or subjects all my life. And that's a, a tougher move for my husband. So my first job in communicating well, not just shooting at him what I composed is the idea that I need to make sure I have his attention so that he doesn't feel like he's already behind in the conversation Mm. when we're moving forward. That's just a thing of honor. That's And we're honoring our audiences when we do the same too. Sometimes we have to get their attention. We always have to get their attention within those first words or those first few pages in order for them to be able to keep listening to what we have to say. I would love to also add this thing from the perspective as a musician and the daughter of a band teacher. Composing is not a bad thing. If we had music that wasn't composed, we would have chaos. Mm. So it's not that we're saying composing is all bad all the time. We can be tasked and maybe gifted with the idea that what we what we write is a beautiful composition, but still our goal has to be communicating with it. Music that's composed very well communicates through the dynamics, through the different instruments that are used, through the pacing, the speeding up, slowing down, louder, softer. It's looking for an emotive response from the from the listener to that music. And whatever emotive response they're looking for, if they're looking to create a peaceful passage, but they've got a little heavy drum in there or it's a little too loud, that's not going to be what comes across. So it's not that composing is an enemy in communicating. It's just that we have to realize that even the goal of composition is communicating. Ooh, that's so good. So good. You also say that in our writing, the goal is resonance, Mm. that, you know, all writing should evoke a response. Share with us what that looks like. I went back to school when I was 35, because I thought the Lord wanted me to be an elementary school teacher and soon discovered, nope, he did not. But (laughs) as I was taking those classes, one of them was a speech class, which a a lot of people had had earlier in their life. And I had had as well in in my college experience prior, but this is one of the requirements. And so I took the speech class and I 
was was reminded of this idea that we're in this game of communicating, whether that's in speech form or writing, we're in this game to evoke a response. It's either, either that we want to draw out something emotionally or we want, or empathy is what we're aiming for as a response or compassion or a call to action. It may be that what we're writing is to encourage the other person to either make a life change or encourage the person to want to give to missions, or it might be uh, that we're trying to create greater understanding. But in order for any of those things to take place, whether it's an action or it's an internal change, or the insight or the hope that we want for the reader to get, what we want them to really grab is the words we're saying or the words we're writing. And it's never going to be to show our brilliance as a writer Mm. or a speaker. But instead, it's offering the reader or the audience what they need to move forward, to move past, to grow, to understand, to change. And in that sense, we are offering our reader the gift, the tools that they need, the insights that they need, the understanding that they need. So it needs to be resonating with them. And we talked a little earlier about the idea of knowing your audience so you'll know if it will resonate or not. I used one time um, an example that had meant a lot to me in the idea, and I've used it often, so some of the listeners today may have heard this before, but we can talk about starving children in third world countries. And we can make a pretty good case of how important it is that we get involved. And we can give stats. That's great. That's another level of resonance. When they hear the statistics, for some people, that's going to be what does make move them to action. Or we could show them still pictures of a starving child. Or a deeper level would be if we showed them a video of a starving child who can hardly draw a breath and the flies are crawling around their eyeballs and the atmosphere and the noise and the deprivation, you can almost, you can almost taste it and feel it. And all of a Mm. sudden I'm more deeply engaged now because it's resonating on a deeper level, or we can put a child in their arms, Mm. a starving child in their arms that's the level at which they they cannot ignore the need because they're brought that close to what the need is. So as we're writing, that's what we're trying to do. Even if we're composing, we can show them a plate of three grains of rice and say, this, this is what it's like for a starving child. This is what they have for a day's meal. And that's a visual, great visual. And it will stick with them. Wonderful. But when they feel the skin of the child, in their arms. When they look into those eyes that are looking back at them, that's our goal then. That resonance, that deep resonance is what we're looking for in our writing. So sometimes that means that we present the case. Uh, When we're writing nonfiction, that might be the situation. We present the case, but then we're always looking to go deeper and another little deeper level and a deeper level. So in essence, we're actually giving the reader the experience of touching the skin of the starving mm. child. That is so provoking, Cynthia. It, 
it's that motion, it's that moving, it's mm-hmm. that gravitation to action. Mm-hmm. And when you were describing the flies, the sunken eyes, the inability for the child to breathe, and that feeling of, I could almost taste the air. I'm being put in a position where I won't be able to just turn away and forget. It's bringing me deeper where I either want to learn more, I automatically care more, or it prompts me to take more action. But we so, do. We we have to use that. That's beautiful. So, Linda, when we think about that regarding fiction writers, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. We, we're creating scenes that will make the reader feel that they are experiencing the scene, not reading about it. The fiction writer isn't reporting what happened. The fiction writer or even the memoir writer, is not reporting what happened, but rather inviting the reader to come experience this too. And those are, sometimes that makes the novel a hard read because it might be yes. about difficult, difficult situations. But at the end, we want the reader to have a character arc change just like the characters in the story did too. Amen. Amen. You say that communication really shouldn't be too fancy. (laughs) You say that our communication, our writing should find itself somewhere on the spectrum between gourmet and fast food. Take us on that road for a second. Well, there's, and in my heart, this is, this is an interesting topic because I love to write the fancy stuff. I, I love to write the Uh, deeply emotional uh, words. I love to create word pictures, not using, and and some of the best writers I know that I have enjoyed reading, I realize when I take a look at it, it's not that they're using fancy words. It's the beautiful way they're putting them together. And that, that is what has appealed to me. But we also realize that if we if we want to use the phrase dumb down what we're writing, that's kind of like fast food that's already been a little too long under that French fry warmer upper thing <laughs> that they have. And and there are certain situations where we need to be communicating in a very casual way because that's what the situation calls for. But as we're writing, if we're focusing on wanting to make our communication make us sound like we're PhDs it's going to be obvious that what we're doing is trying to make our writing sound like we're PhDs as opposed to communicating with the reader and giving the reader the tools they need to be drawn deeper and deeper into whatever it is that we're writing about. Many times how that turns out is that we'll be reading along and and we'll either have a moment of, I don't even know what that word means, or we'll have a moment of, huh? What were they just saying? We really need to avoid the, huh? We love Mm. it when a reader wants to know more. But readers these days have so many reading options that if we aren't able to cause what we're saying, where they're speaking or writing, if we're not able to keep them with us, 
they're very easily going to turn to something else, one of the other many, many, many things they have that will occupy their time and that can feed their reading hunger. So in all of this, we if you've ever been to a super, super fancy restaurant, you might have looked at the plate and thought, what even is this? I don't even recognize <laughs> as a food item. And that may stop you, or it may stop many people. Some of us are adventurous and we'll just try anything, but it may stay, stop many people from actually experiencing the meal. Mm. But if they know what it is and can recognize what it is, even if they've never seen it treated that way before, then they'll still be with you. So sometimes what that means is that we'll have to use that big word, that that dictionary word, but within the context of the sentence, they can figure it out without having to go back to the dictionary to find out. And that doesn't mean Webster says, and then we spell out the definition. It's a writer who can make that be evident within the context of the paragraph or the sentence without their having to go to the dictionary. It doesn't mean we don't want to keep learning because we do want to keep learning and learning good vocabulary too, but that's the basic premise in my mind. And we do. We want the read for our reader to kind of be seamless. Mm. We want it to grab the attention, to start the journey, have them where they're willing to toss that carabiner up and hook into the side of the mountain with you and maybe hang there for a little bit in order to get a footing of what you're trying to explain to them. Instead of saying, I'm not even going to attempt to climb with you. And I liken it to always being able to, as a writer, your hand is reaching down and saying, come with me. And I know where you're standing. Come with me and let me take you on a journey. Let's go to the next step, but let's go together. And I can hear that in what you're explaining to us. And I, I really like where you're going with that. Now, you also tell us, and this is, oh, I see it all the time, but I also hear it in, when we have speakers. You say that if your writing is speaking at the reader, the reader isn't listening. Mm. That is just plain truth right there. Yes, plain truth. If we can envision that our writing is like a conversation, We may not be hearing what the reader is saying on the other end, but we're envisioning what the reader might be saying on the other end. They they might be sitting on a beach reading the book four years after it was ever written. So it looks like a one-way conversation, but it isn't. If we can envision that while we write, we're going to have much greater success in the idea of keeping that reader with you for that journey as you you take them along. There's an awful lot of finger pointing writing that goes on. Mm-hmm. There's an yes. awful lot of, I just need to tell you everything I know about this topic. So I see this oftentimes too in the writing that says something like, I want you to, mm. or you must or you have to, or by the time you get done reading my book, I want you to have gained the, and all of a sudden, I'm, mm. it's, it's off-putting to read that. And part of that is related to this idea that if I believe, or if I get the impression 
that the author is trying to spill all the information that they have. The author is my high and mighty teacher, and that this is a textbook that if I just stay in that textbook long enough, I'm apparently going to be able to graduate a better person. But all of a sudden, I'm my mind is in a place of, I'm done with school. I, I paid my dues for school. I got, I went mm. through all that. I'm not looking for textbook. I'm looking for you to come alongside me and yes. let me know that's what you're doing. So even the simple phrases that sometimes is just habit that the writer will say, I want you to, or, and right now, as I look at a lot of other people's writing, I will almost a hundred percent of the time flag that and ask them to read word so that it comes out sounding far more like, let's do this together. And it's not intended mm-hmm. to be like a nurse saying, are we ready for our bath yet? And the patient right. is, well, I'm ready for mine, but I don't know about you. But, <laughs> but rather, it's that idea that in the body of Christ, certainly, we're in this together. We are, we're in this journey together. And Anytime any of us, and the Bible is pretty clear about that, anytime any of us think we're better than the people we're taught Mm. to, we have already failed in our mission to them. So that's part of that, that idea. And then I talk also often about the idea of trust falls in writing. A lot of people, especially those who have had a wide speaking ministry where they are if not eyeball to eyeball, certainly audience to speaker in front of someone. And the the audience is able to see your body language as a speaker, is able to see the expressions on your face, sees that you're smiling while you say what you're saying, has maybe gotten to know you while you're standing in the cafeteria in the line for the buffet. When they have gotten to know you that way, at least that much, you have an advantage, even if you're a stranger to their community. You also are able to see what's happening with them, as you said, when they're leaning forward, when it looks like they're falling asleep, when they're starting to cry, you know that something's happening in that audience and you adjust your talk around that or you adjust your methods around it or you explain a little deeper. We do not have that advantage when we're writing for print. And that essence, what that will help, what that will cause us to need to do so that we're not just composing, but we're communicating is recognizing also that we can't ask our reader to do a trust fall with us if they don't know who we are. Mm -hmm. So we can't say, trust me here, this is going to be important for you. That's going to mean nothing to the reader who doesn't know you personally. First comes, they need to get to know they can trust you before you can say the really heavy things. And part of that getting to know they can trust you is maybe having to go with a little more of the gentle words before you can say the harsh word or never saying the harsh word. That's another option. Right, right. How, How can you help them? How can you help them get to know you? But, and part of that is that I, that idea that they, they're, either going to tolerate what you say, embrace what you have to say, or not tolerate what you have to say and put the book aside. So our goal obviously is that they wouldn't just tolerate it, but that they would embrace it. We've talked about like our main goal. We have six main goals here, obviously, but it all goes back to (laughs) to that idea of our 
our idea is, is communicating. And in the communicating, what do we have to do in the actual writing so that that will happen? So it will be the conversation between the reader, whether we ever hear what they're having to say or not, it is a conversation with them. And as long as we keep that in mind as we're writing, I actually liked how you said it could be four years later and someone's sitting on the beach reading your book. Mm. Have have I considered that as I'm writing it? Mm. What is the posture of the person who's reading this right now? Are they listening to this in their earbuds? Mm. Are they, what are they doing and how can I encapsulate their surroundings in what it is that I'm writing so that they do experience that journey? Am I willing to work at it? Am I willing to not just point my words, to put my words out there, but to have that consideration of where is my reader right now? And have I invited them on a journey? Have I initiated that come alongside? Or am I just doing, here's the facts, just the facts, take it, do this. I can see how what you said really does make what we do better. There and, are, oh, oh it's powerful. No, it's powerful. There are a couple of things that have been on my mind lately. One is that my husband and I have been watching a couple of um, movies in the evening during this long, cold winter uh, here in Wisconsin. It's a long, cold winter. And we've um, what what we've noticed is that in a couple of those movies, there were people groups who were set into an arena with a people group who, sp- who spoke an entirely different language. So mm-hmm. neither of the people could speak the other's language. And it wasn't just awkward. It was terrifying. They mm-hmm. could not get their messages across easily. It took a long time before they even had a couple of words that they could share in common the process of going through that was related to, are both parties interested in figuring out how are we going to make this work? How are Mm -hmm. we going to communicate together? And sometimes some were quicker than others to pick up bits of the language of the other person so that they could at least live in the same neighborhood or the same community. And eventually it became that they were drawn together deeply. And oftentimes it was the crises of life that drew them together. But the point was that they needed to learn each other's language in order to be able to function as a community. And sometimes that's what a writer has to do as well. And it's not that we're saying, I will no longer be this person, but it will be, I will be this person with my native tongue, so to speak, but I will communicate in such a way that the person listening on the other end will not only understand, but benefit from what I have to say. Uh, there's that beautiful verse in Habakkuk 2.2 that, that says, write the vision and make it plain. But the words plain there, I don't believe were meant to say simple or simpleton or ordinary. Certainly it didn't mean make the words ordinary. This is this was a vision from God that they were talking about. Nothing ordinary right. about it. But the task was write it down, but don't just write it down. Make it so that it communicates with those who read it. And if 
God knew that that was an important thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure that he intended that we would adopt that verse that was meant for another purpose in the writing that we're doing too, to make it digestible, to make it accessible and make it approachable. That's it. So good. Would you have given us a plethora of information for us to be able to digest, nibble on, and consume? I'm going to encourage our listeners, listen to this again and see what God is going to download into you, specific to you, because that's how the Holy Spirit works. Mm. We can hear something in a group and many of us walk away with an entirely different thought with the communication skills of the Holy Spirit. I see a lot of that working here. But I think in our writing, we need to take into consideration, how can I make this so that there's satisfaction Mm -hmm. at the end of the read? How can I help my reader to be satisfied that they have walked away with everything that was my intent? And sometimes we have to get out of our own way when we do that. So... Following some of what you suggested to us, Cynthia, I think works really well. And I'm glad that you came and provided this info for us. And and I look forward to all that God continues to do in and through you. I, I do have a question for you. Certainly. Because I love to ask our, our guests as they've come on. And I know you, you've been on before, but I don't believe I asked you this question. So, Cynthia Rookty, what brings you joy? I could answer simply with something like my grandchildren and my children, which is absolutely true. But the one of the first things that comes to my mind is music. And it's because music is one of God's love languages and mm. mine. It's one of the ways that I, if I'm in a place of my thoughts are going where they shouldn't go. If I crank the worship music real loud and put my headphones on so everything else in the world is silenced, Mm -hmm. my mind and my emotions and my heart will be back in the right place by the time I get done because God speaks so clearly to me through music. I love all kinds of music and my My father's influence certainly made that a part of my life. All of us kids are instrumental. All my siblings have instrument and vocal talents that we have developed over the years. It's this part about where God's heart and my heart are beating in the same rhythm through music. That's what brings me joy. So nice. I love family influence as well. And we are part of God's family. So that just kind of works together there. Now, as we wrap up, I'm going to encourage our listeners. We'll have all this information in the show notes. Cynthia and I were talking and she has some amazing freebies on her website. If you go to Cynthia Rookty and it's in the show notes, you'll be able to click CynthiaRookty.com or HemmedInHope.com dot com, then you're going to find the your opportunity to sign up for her newsletter and receive some printables that you can download or that you can print directly off the newsletter. And she also has Mercy's Laws of Marriage. Cynthia, give us a little a little insight to the Mercy's Laws of Marriage there. 
A lot of us understand the idea of Murphy's laws of marriage, that if anything can go wrong, it will, or how that might apply to marriage, that it just at the moment that you most need your spouse, they won't be available. That's just a Murphy's law. But there are Mercy's laws of marriage, too, that God created. And one of the main thoughts in that is that we can apply that. We we can apply Mercy's laws to our marriages, to all of our relationships, and one of the one of the taglines of that concept is in a good good marriage mercy gets the last word every time mm. i love it and i know that your latest book is available it uh, was released in the fall spouse in the house great read great read we'll have links to all of those as well cynthia rookie it's been a pleasure having you here with us on Your Best Writing Life. Thank you so much for coming back and for feeding into the lives of our writers. It's it's just been a joy to have you here. Oh, thank you, Linda. It's always a joy and always a joy to reconnect with you and your heart. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And I thank you, friends, for joining us. Please take a moment, if you would, to subscribe, rate, and review because what you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I look forward to being here with you next time on Your Best Writing Life.